Uh, we can't start for eight more minutes. Why? Is there some kind of sporting game on? No. I don't know if you can hear this. Hold on. Is that the rain or the wind? No, that's my IMAX screaming. No, it was raining here, and I was wondering <laughs> if it was going to keep up. It was raining earlier. It's actually gorgeous now, but it was raining earlier. Actually, all this time, Casey's IMAX just doesn't work in the rain, and he just never thought to, to mention it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> this here, this is the little plastic sheathing, if you will, for an ATP pin. I have to say, it looks magnificent. Uh, I am quite excited about these pins. I actually have not yet opened one. Let me. Oh, you should open it. Uh, mine arrived today, and I opened one, and it is. They are really nice. <laughs> yeah, this this is this is excellent work. It has a nice uh, soft little like uh, uh, stabby thing cap. Stabby thing is that a technical term for what? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's another exactly word right. for the thing that's on the back of what are they called again? Probably a post would be a guess. <laughs> a backing. Um, yeah, but anyway, uh, so the little thing that protects the post is very nice, very soft. It is it is quite nice, this pin. And, uh, you know, I highly suggest, listeners, if you'd like to uh, throw a few bucks our way, you should pick one up. And, uh, Marco, why don't you tell us about where you can get these pins, among many other things, which I will also talk about. So you can go to atp.fm slash shirt for our usual URL, or you can go to our new URL, atp.fm slash store. Ooh. And the reason why it's store is that this year we have zero new designs, but like five new products. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so with that in mind, I now have, that's me hitting the brim of my baseball cap onto the microphone. This is a, an embroidered ATP. What is, what is the official name for the grayish color? It's like charcoal, coal, coal something? Space gray. Space yeah, gray. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely <laughs> space gray. How could I, how could I be so wrong? Um, it is a space gray embroidered ATP hat. I am quite into it. It looks quite good. I also have with me, and I am playing with it now, but it's not making very much noise, an ATP embroidered zipped hoodie. Now, I am quite excited about this. I don't really wear hoodies. Like the hood to me is kind of redundant, but I know a lot of people are useless. Maybe I know a lot of people that love the hood part of the hoodie. However, my word, the inside of this thing is made of magic. It is extremely soft. It is thin, but thick enough that it will provide warmth. You know, it's not one of those scenarios where it's like a piece of like, you know, tissue paper that you're wrapping yourself with. It, it's thick enough that it's got some heft to it, but it's still very light and casual. And I have to say this thing is quite nice, but perhaps more importantly than anything else, I have, and you can't hear this either, I have an ATP embroidered polo. Finally, it is it is a real thing. I had gotten a pre-release version of this like a year ago. I might have accidentally lost it like a week ago. I really honestly don't know where it is. It's somewhere in the house. I can't find it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I have a brand new ATP polo and it's made out of, what is this, like Nike Dry Fit or something like that? It's, it's yeah, Nike Dry Fit. It reminds me a little bit of Under Armour, which sounds like a bad thing because Under Armour's marketing is like really Broy, but it's actually quite nice. And I am very excited because I still, at this moment anyway, have a jobby job and I wear collared shirts to my jobby job and I am excited to have a polo. So, listeners, if you have a jobby job where you can wear a polo, if you just like collars, 
if you want to pop a collar, then please don't. But if you have to, if you're going to pop a collar at all, at least do it in an ATP shirt. You should buy two of these shirts so you can have two collars inside uh, You know exactly. what, John? I like where your head's at. That is a great idea. You can appear in a WWC keynote. That is a fantastic idea. And if no other reason, you should buy this polo shirt because I fought tooth and nail with Marco particularly <laughs> to get the polos offered. And I need some amount of vindication on this issue. So please... Buy a polo, if you don't mind, or buy anything, really. The pins, buy, buy all the things, really, is what we're trying to say. Buy all the things, because it'd be great. And uh, they're all really great and really high quality. Go to atp.fm slash store and buy some stuff. Yeah, and you have to do it soon if you want it. Um, all Everything except the pin, all the clothing items are all like being like pre-sold, and then at the end, they print it and ship it, just like you know, a lot of these T-shirt campaigns that, that people like us do. Um, the date that you have to order by for all the clothing items is May 7th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Hurry up. That is, that's coming up fast. If you want the clothing items, hurry up. If you want the pins, they don't work that way. The pins ship pretty much immediately, but there's a fixed number of them that exist. And I will tell you that bef- this is the first time we're promoting it on the show. We only announced it on Twitter a few days ago. We've already sold about a third of the pins. So if you want pins, really hurry up because I have a feeling they're going to sell out within not that much time after this episode airs, maybe by next week. But, you know, it's it's not going to be you're not going to have a lot of time on the pins. And again, if you want those clothing items, order those by May 7th. So uh, otherwise, you know, we we are really excited about this. I, I was very disappointed, honestly, last year in the quality of products that we got out of Teespring. And because of that, we agreed not to use Teespring anymore. And we were going to go to back to Cotton Bureau anyway, but then they approached us with this amazing you know, proposal for making a whole storefront with multiple items, many of which are things that they don't, that, you know, not just anybody can go to them and print things like pins and embroidery uh, items and stuff like that. And they are so good. They're so nice uh, that we're just really happy working with them again. And uh, and their stuff is you know top notch quality, and we're we're very happy that they um, they now have m- much more affordable shipping outside of the U.S. We should also clarify that the designs of all of this are based on the rainbow ATP logo from two years ago. We, you know, we we, we tried uh, some new designs for this year. We couldn't come up with anything uh, that was that very good in time. And everybody has been begging us since we since this campaign ended in mid 2016. Everyone loved the design. Everybody wanted more. And you know, last year we had a great design too. But I think I have no regrets going back to this design for this year. Um, and and the storefront is actually going to remain open indefinitely. You know, we might add more stuff over time if you know maybe not waiting until. WWDC next year. Maybe we'll do it a little bit more ahead of time, um, or maybe we'll do something in the fall. Who knows? But the storefront will kind of be a, a an indefinite thing uh, with products coming in and out at different times. But right now, if you want the rainbow logo, clothing items, or pins, go now because your time is limited on those. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. And as a final addendum, I cannot tell you the amount of times I've heard somebody say to me via Twitter or whatever, oh, I just missed it. I kept meaning to do it and I never did it. And now I can't have that anymore. Don't wait. Don't wait. Just just, just give us your friggin' money. I mean, buy yourself a beautiful piece of ATP artwork in a shirt. Do what you can right now before you forget because you will be kicking yourself if you forget and especially if you're interested in the pins. We will probably eventually one day do another run of these pins, eventually. Oh, we're definitely going to do more pins. The only question is when and which ones. Yeah, we're not sure when. 
And just like Marco said, we'll, we'll call attention to it probably when other things appear in the store. But hey, maybe uh, set a, you know, every couple of months reminder in DUE to check out atp.fm slash store because we might put something else up. In fact, we've already got a couple of other things in the works as we speak that we will probably be doing uh, later. You just Osborne all our merch. Stop. Cut that out. <laughs> what do you mean I Osborne? What the hell does that even mean? Uh-huh. You don't, oh, come on. You'll look up on Wikipedia later. In case you didn't see that movie. Even Marco's seen that one. <laughs> oh, one, one final, final bit. Uh, the Rainbow ATP uh, logo merch is, uh, is very popular when we offered it in 2016. People kept asking us to bring it out. But I believe that we actually sold more of my t-shirt design last year. Just saying. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, uh, I got two, uh, two more quick angles on merchandise one i when i was browsing the cotton bureau site they saw a whole bunch of stuff and like at the bottom they show like the popular items and our stuff was down there but also uh mkbhd's shirt was down there and i'm like huh he's got one day left on his campaign he's old only sold like 500 shirts we can beat that so i really want to sell more shirts than his bazillion uh subscriber youtube channel so let's all go do that and win one for podcasting and the second thing is (laughs) people have also been asking about stickers we do not have stickers for sale but if you are at WWDC and you find one of us, chances are good that if you want a sticker, we will give you one for free. That is accurate. I know it's bad if you're not at WWDC, and we may look into selling stickers someday, somehow, some way. They're not available now, but if you, you are lucky enough to be in San Jose with us, not even at WWDC, but in San Jose, and you find one of us, and you want one of the stickers that we might have, we will just give you one. We are sponsored this week by Linode. Go to linode.com slash ATP to learn more. Linode is my favorite web host. I have been there, I think, about eight years now. I have all of my stuff hosted there. And the reason why is that it's just better than everything else I've tried. Not only is it a better value, you know, their plans start at just one gig of RAM for just $5 a month. That's a really good price. And if you look at their pricing for all their plans, and they have high memory plans, every time I've checked, they are either the best game in town or they're tied with the best game in town. They're an incredible value for what you get. All of this is running on enterprise-grade SSDs, Xeon E5 CPUs, 40 gigabit network backing it. They have all sorts of great features like load balancing. Uh, they have an API to automate the creation and resizing and things like that of new instances. It's incredibly nice to be a Linode customer because you just have so much available to you at such good pricing. You can even try stuff out with hourly billing. They have 24-7 friendly support if you ever need it. Phone support is also available. You can run Docker containers. You can run encrypted disks. You can run VPNs. Or you can be boring and just run uh, PHP MySQL web app like I do. Check out Linode today. And if you use, uh, if you go to linode.com slash ATP, or if you use promo code ATP2018, you will get a $20 credit. If you choose the base plan, the one gig plan, that's four months. That's five bucks a month. So it's great. Check it out today, linode.com slash ATP. And if they're actually hiring, if you're looking for a job, linode.com slash careers. Thank you so much to Linode for sponsoring our show. Listener Casey asks, who definitely, definitely, definitely is not me. Definitely not me. Hey, uh, would Bitcode make an Intel to ARM transition easier? The reason I ask is, I mean, the reason that other KCS is his or my or somebody's understanding of Bitcode is that basically what Apple eventually gets in, in the iTunes store or Mac app store is kind of like an intermediate, intermediate language, kind of an IL version of your code. So it's been quasi compiled, but it's 
recompilable, that's probably not a word, but you get what I'm trying to say. Uh, you, Apple can recompile it to take advantage of, you know, new instructions on processors and things of that nature. So would that be enough to make an Intel to ARM transition easier? So I, I'm like, didn't we already talk about this in ATB? And then I remembered we talked about it with Chris Latner, the creator of LLVM and uh, someone who knows a little something about bitcode and bytecode. And also, luckily, uh, this is one of the rare, the only episode, I think, that we actually transcribed. Uh, so we'll put a link in the show notes to the section of our interview with Chris Latner, where we talk about Bitcode. And we talk about some of these same issues, like would this, you know, uh, what is Bitcode for? How is it different than Bytecode? Does it help with portability? Um, so I would encourage everyone to review that because we don't want to rehash it all here. But my short answer is that it doesn't help as much as you might think, because Bitcode is not a completely architecture agnostic uh representation it is not the same as machine code like it is more independent than that that's the whole point of it to be able to you know like they give uh, i think chris gives an example about like if you're if you're running bit code and compiling it down to machine code for uh, a processor that doesn't have a particular kind of divide instruction but then later you get a new processor and a new iphone that has that divide instruction they can then convert the bit code to different machine code so there is some portability there but in terms of oh bit code is completely architecture agnostic and you can compile it down to anything it's not like uh you know it, it's not there's no virtual machine specification like there is with the jvm and, and java byte code and stuff like that it's you know it's more independent than than hardware but not as independent as we've defined a virtual machine uh like the, the jvm and this is the byte code for the virtual machine and then that's the model that you program against. And then that virtual machine runs on actual hardware. That's not the way Bitcode works. So I'd, I mean, is it a factor? You know, Bitcode isn't set in stone, just like the thing that preceded a bytecode wasn't set in stone. So there could be a successor to Bitcode that really does help a lot with some kind of transition, If there's some, especially if there's some kind of translation layer, if they change architectures. But Bitcode as it exists now, I don't think is so uh, enough help that it would make a significant difference only perhaps that it gives Apple a leg up on, Oh, we really do want to make a translation layer. So we'll make the successor to Bitcode, And so we have that experience with both bytecode and Bitcode for LVM. We'll make, I don't know, Bitcode two or something. And that would help. I have some follow up about backpacks. Uh, much to, <laughs> I, I hate to announce this. I'm really sorry, Casey. I had to return the Tom bin. What? Why? As we discussed last week, uh, I got the Tombin Synapse 25 and going against my peak design everyday 20 liter backpack, uh, I was I was hoping that the Tombin would store more stuff and have things more externally accessible than the peak design. Um, th- those are my main, my main problems with the peak are that it was it didn't hold enough and that I didn't like the design of the side pockets, um, making everything a little hard to get to and the laptop compartment was a little bit tight and all, you know, all the, all the organization was kind of internal to the bag instead of external. So I got the Tom bin 25 and last week I raved about how awesome it seemed and, and but I hadn't actually traveled with it yet or, or, or really used it outside of the house. Even I, I, I had just like, you know, played with it in my office for, for a couple hours. And one thing I didn't do at the time of last week's recording was loaded up with a lot of stuff and put it on. And when I tried that, I could not make it comfortable. Hmm. Like it, it just felt really wrong on me. And so I'm guessing the Synapse 25 is just, you know, not a good fit for my particular, I don't know, size and shape, my back, whatever else the, the, the curvature of it, in like the lumbar area of your back just didn't i couldn't find a way to make that sit no matter how i packed it 
And I know people are probably going to write it and say, oh, I packed it wrong or I should I should try this or that. And I tried a lot of different ways of packing it and, and you know, different things in the back and different weight distributions and everything. Uh, and I, I just could not find anything that made it feel right and feel comfortable on me. And then I took the exact same test load of stuff that I was packing it with and put it in the peak. And the very first try, it felt perfect. Hmm. So I, unfortunately, the, it just doesn't fit me. Like, it, you know, in, in its physical design, like I had, I had problems with the feel of the lumbar area as well as um, just the way the straps distributed the weight on my shoulders. I felt like the weight was too high and, uh, and kind of just, I don't know, it didn't feel right. And I, I tried as, as many adjustments and, and rearrangements as I could, and, and I just couldn't get it to work for me. So I, I, I sent that back, unfortunately. They do have a, a, a very generous return policy that, that, you know, if something doesn't work out, you can send it back if, as long as you haven't, like, you know, taken it on a hike and worn it outside and stuff like that. So I, I appreciate that, and I, I hope to check them out again in the future. But it, it just didn't fit me, like, physically. And, and meanwhile, the peak, like, I didn't have to jump through any hoops. I just put it on, and it fit perfectly. So my, my, my current backpack plan, you know, backpacks to me are like to-do apps and email apps for Mike. Like, I, I'm always like, <laughs> I'm always like at most like 60 or 70% satisfied with one and always kind of keeping an eye out for others. Um, but I don't buy them very often because I just, it, you know, they're, it's, they're expensive and it's kind of a pain. Um, so my current stance is I'm back on the peak. There's a lot about the peak I do really like, so I'm just going to stick with it for a while and just deal with the fact that it doesn't hold that much. And on trips, just you know, get reaccustomed to the idea that I'm just going to be bringing a little, a small, you know, rolling suitcase for the overhead bin, uh, in addition to a backpack. So that's where I am on backpacks. I'm sorry to hear that. So, in terms of like quality and things of that nature, it sounds like the Tom bin was fine. It's just the ergonomics against your your you know that particular bag against your particular body. Just it it wasn't compatible. As far as I can tell, yes. I mean, I don't want to go through a big, like, you know, parade of returns with them trying out all their other bags. Totally, uh, totally. I'm just going to kind of hold off, and maybe if I ever visit Seattle, I'll visit their store. But uh, but for now, you know, I'm I'm happier enough with the Peak. Uh, it's funny, actually, the Peak does actually work significantly better than the Tombin in one major way for the way I happen to use a bag, which is the vast majority of the time, the my backpack is sitting next to my desk on the floor and the laptop is in it and the power cable that keeps the laptop charged is kind of like floating out through the top of the bag like with the laptop compartment open so it's always kind of it's always plugged in but ready to go and the tom bin bags they can't stand up by themselves the peak does because it's so much bigger and it's so much bulkier fabric and it's more rigid fabric um whereas the tom bin is more like just like a floppy bag basically and you can buy a frame for it but that makes it weird in ways that i don't i didn't want um so it actually the peak actually works significantly better the way my backpack is actually used most of the time which is standing up on the floor next to my desk where the the uh the tom bin just kind of would constantly flop over and um so i guess you know it's good for that and and ultimately the peak is not bad i really do enjoy a lot about it it's a really nice bag um i just i wish it held more and there is a 30 liter version of the peak but by all accounts, the 30 liter is way too big by, by what most people say for for uh, what I'm going for, which is fitting under an airline seat no matter what. Because like one thing that drives me nuts, uh, and this is kind of the reason why I'm sticking with the 20, I think. When I travel, I always want my backpack under the seat in front of me on a plane. Always. There is never a situation where I want to put the backpack in the overhead bin. 
and I hate like I, I I always when I'm booking seats I always go to Seat Guru, and I check the plane not 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 to see like you know that I'm getting a seat that's not next to a bathroom or anything. I mainly am checking the seat I'm booking to make sure I have storage under the seat in front of me, because on a lot of planes now and a lot of types of seats, you you know you either have like a bulkhead in front of you or a galley or the seat or you have like those big computer boxes under the seats that take up half the space so you can't actually fit anything under there so it's really hard to know without checking something like seat guru whether you have anywhere to put something under the seat and i don't want to keep going up and down to the overhead compartment to like get stuff out during a long flight so i always want something that can fit under the seat and so almost every bag that can hold more than the peak 20 liter if you actually put more in it you start increasing the risk that it's not going to fit under the seat in front of you so that's yet another reason why I think I'm I think I'm coming to the conclusion that one backpack travel is probably not something I actually want because if I actually achieve one backpack travel for almost any trip the backpack is going to have to be too big for me to reliably fit it under the seat in front of me on most flights. So I think I'm going to again just go back to having a small roller roller bag uh, in the overhead bin and a small to medium sized backpack uh, for under the seat. Fair enough. That's uh, that's a bummer. I'm sad that Tom Bin didn't work out, but uh, I still wholeheartedly and enthusiastic enthusiastically endorse it. So that's okay. Well, the other thing that's imposing size constraints, besides the the, the underneath of the airline seat, perhaps to Marco's comfort with backpacks, is his back. Uh, so you got the smaller backpack, and it doesn't quite hold your stuff, but maybe it fits your back better than a big one would. And so that if you got any big backpack, that no matter how well it fit under a seat or not, it might just not feel comfortable on you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right, tell us about your uh, Facebook problems. So as we discussed, I believe it was last episode, um, I I still had a Facebook account, which I never really used for much of anything. I, I hardly ever really posted anything ever. Um, but the main reason I was using it for, was for membership in a couple of private groups. And I didn't want to lose that because it provided access to things like my beach town that I love so much and, and like local school stuff and everything else. And in the meantime, I discovered something wonderful. I discovered that the school group is useless because I actually like looked at it. I'm like, have I ever gotten any value out of this? And the answer was no. And the beach group, I discovered there's also a bunch of beach people on Instagram from the same town that post a lot of pictures and stuff. And I realized that what I mostly wanted out of that group was pictures of what's going on in town while I'm not there. And Instagram provides that without any of the angry old people that are complaining about whatever happened at the latest meeting with the village trustees and the mayor and all that crap. I mean, God, anybody out there who works in local government, I thank you. I thank you for your service. The storm that local government tends to be, I can't imagine dealing with that every day. Because like if you've ever if, if you've ever been like part of a Facebook group that has your local town stuff in it or if or if you've ever gone to a meeting like a variance meeting or, or any kind of like town, you know, or village government meeting, it's like Parks and Rec. Like, like it, the people are that bad. <laughs> Anybody who works local government, these jobs are oftentimes either unpaid or part time, very low paid jobs. They are completely thankless jobs and and they they are incredibly important for making things work functionally in our society and making things nice in our neighborhoods and all i ever see on facebook groups and in these meetings is bitter angry people just throwing complaints at 
the local government people and asking for the impossible and not understanding like actual constraints and actual factors that went into things. So anybody who works out there in local government, I applaud you and I thank you and I could never ever do that. And, and I very much respect your ability to do that. Anyway, so I realized that the the Facebook group for the Beach Town was pretty much 90% those complaints and 10% pretty pictures that I wanted to see. And Instagram is 100% pretty pictures I want to see and none of the complaints from the old people. So I just left the group and deleted my account and it's just done. I'm just following things on Instagram now, which, yes, I know is owned by Facebook. So that kind of, you know, takes a lot of the wind out of the sails of why I'm leaving Facebook. (laughs) But otherwise, you know, I'm out and I'm happy that I'm out. Since uh, everyone's been talking about Facebook, I guess, because of the Cambridge Analytica thing and stuff on various podcasts I've been listening to, everyone has had that section of the podcast that we've had now on two or three podcasts in a row, which is like, I don't like Facebook, but I like Instagram. And yes, I know Instagram is owned by Facebook. So blah, blah, blah. Right. But the more I keep hearing that, the more I think, yeah, so it's it's not great that it's owned by Facebook, but by voting with your feet or whatever, voting with your virtual feet, you are sending the signal that I don't like how Facebook works. I like how Instagram works. Now, Instagram can change because owned by Facebook. It could start working in different ways. It already has with the stupid algorithmic timeline or whatever, right? But that, I think, is just as strong a signal. It's like, well, you're not really sending any signal if you just delete your Facebook account but just use Instagram and it's also owned by Facebook. Yes, you're sending, in this case, you're sending Facebook the signal, Facebook bad, Instagram good, more like Instagram, less like Facebook. And of course, if, if Facebook changes Instagram into Facebook, then you probably leave that too, right? But this, it's still a signal, even though it's going to the same company. If your goal is to the downfall of Facebook, I think you're going to have to wait for the generational turnover to uh, to bite them in the butt when uh, the kids that are growing up now who don't want Facebook account don't get one. But um, like, I don't, I don't think the goal is tear down as a revenge fantasy. I think the goal is stop making you know make things like Facebook less fewer things like Facebook more things like Instagram. And so that's the signal you're sending. So I don't, you know, if if anyone gives you crap about that or says, well, it's pointless because you're going to Instagram because they're owned by Facebook. I don't totally agree with that. I see where they're coming from, but I think it's still a, it's a a good move. We are sponsored this week by RxBar. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash ATP and enter code ATP at checkout. RX bars are great protein bars for a number of different occasions. Breakfast on the go, snacks at the office, throw it in your bag so you can have it on the plane instead of the terrible plane food, toss it in your backpack for a bike ride or a hike, or as a snack for before or after a workout. I like to have RX bars personally. I, I, I eat a lot of these now. <laughs> I like to have them at like the 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon hump where I've had lunch at a regular time, like 12, and I'm getting a little bit hungry at about 3 or 4, and it's a little too early for dinner, and normally I would just grab some garbage snacks at that time and fill myself with garbage, and that's not great, and that's not healthy, and it just makes you more tired. RX bars have real food ingredients, and they say it right on the front what's in them. Uh, it's, it's the ones, you, you've probably seen them in stores recently. They say right on the front, they'll say something like, three egg whites, two dates, six almonds, and no BS. It's right there on the package what's in them. You can tell. They don't try to hide anything from you. And it turns out you don't need any of the BS ingredients to taste good. Real food tastes great. You can actually taste things like the cocoa and the chocolate ones, real fruit in the fruit ones. Whether you like sweet or savory 
or chocolate or fruit flavors, there is an RX bar for you. There's 11 different flavor varieties, and they're always experimenting and adding more. All RX bars are gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free. There's no artificial colors, no added sugar, no artificial flavors or preservatives or fillers or any of that crap. There's egg whites for protein, dates to bind it together, and nuts for texture. Egg white protein is actually a really good source of protein. It's easy for your body to absorb. These things are great. I've, I, my favorite flavor, personally, I think is the uh, the chocolate coconut one. Um, I also really like the apple cinnamon. And I actually just ordered yesterday, before I even knew they were sponsoring, I just ordered the uh, coffee flavor. That's the, the chocolate coffee. I'm looking forward to that. Check it out today, rxbar.com slash ATP, and use code ATP at checkout to get 25% off your first order. That's rxbar.com slash ATP with code ATP for 25% off. Thank you so much to RxBar for sponsoring our show. John, you uh, you need to tell me about something. Uh, you need to tell me what is not a touchscreen. <laughs> I was on, uh, it was like a school vacation week last week and uh i was away uh visiting family seeing all the, the sites to be seen in a different state um and one of the week i had time to go to the movies which is a rarity and one of the things i noticed at the movie theater i was going to was an amc and we go to a local amc too but they, it was like a they, we had to buy tickets there because the amc the amc app and website and the fandango app and website were all just not doing well like they they didn't seem to be working at all i tried to buy the ticket and it would give me some obscure error you know some some sort of like 503 proxy error from the back end to get propagated all the way up into an ios dialogue on my phone i'm like well whatever um so but like there's nobody there it's the middle of the week we're just going to go and show up and buy tickets and we had no problem getting a ticket you know it was the empty theater is the middle of the day right it was like a 10 a.m uh movie show which i love i love going to movies when no one else is there um but so we had to go to the physical kiosk to buy uh movie tickets and the kiosk was like there was like a screen that the point of sale person used to do whatever they were doing is not facing us and there was also a screen facing us and at one point they said because these are all like reserved seating in the amc theaters these days it's like which seats do you want when you buy when you buy tickets through the app it also lets you pick seats by the way this is why we go to amc because reserved seating movie theaters is the best um and they say pick your seats and the screen in front of you facing you shows the seat layout in the theater with like the ones that are taken you know dimmed out and the ones that are still available highlighted or whatever and they have big labels on them like you know f1 f2 f3 or whatever but the screen that's facing you it's just a plain old lcd and they have like a giant you know printed on like a brother label printer uh label on the bottom of the monitor facing you that says in all caps not a touch screen because <laughs> because what you see on the screen is a bunch of seats and you're like oh i want this seat this seat and this seat like everybody just immediately reaches for the screen and touches seats a b c like you just touch the seats you want right because if the screen is facing you it's right there uh but to stop people from doing that they have to have the sticker and not just have the sticker which by the way is not part of the monitor like this has been added afterwards like added by the dealer and in car parlance right the sticker also <laughs> as part of like the the spiel that they do, like the sales pitch, the you know the, the the poor worker there is mindlessly going through every time they say, you know, what show do you want to see? Blah blah blah. Uh, you know, and they go they go through the whole thing, and there is a part in the, in the little speech where they say, "Please select the seats you want," uh, and remember that is not a touch screener. Like it was it was part of the thing, and they were saying it kind of like bored <laughs> offhand and mindlessly that it is literally part of the script that they go through every single time. They have to warn every single person that it's not a touchscreen and have the sticker. And I bet 
people still touch the screen. So I tweeted about this and people replied to me and they say, despite being told that it's not a touch screen, despite the label, I also touched it or I've seen other people touch it or I work in a movie theater and people touch it all the time. There's no way you can stop them from touching the screen. So I was really thinking about how how fundamentally now, not just for like little kids, this is the whole thing of like, oh, little kids, how aren't they funny? They're already swiping on every screen they see because they grew up with phones and iPads, right? Everybody, senior citizens, adults, little kids, teenagers, everybody, if presented with the screen, and anything appears on the screen that looks like there's any possibility that you could touch it before any part of their brain kicks in, their tiny lizard brain goes, much touch screen. Uh, so this is like the default way to interact with screens to the point where if you ever have a screen that it doesn't allow that, you need a giant all caps label and a verbal warning and you still won't stop people from touching it. And uh, all this makes me think, uh, I, I posted about this because I just thought it was a, a, you know, a funny extreme thing, but it's, it's a big change. And I, the, I finish the tweet by saying, how long before MacBooks need a similar sticker? Remember when MacBooks used to say like MacBook Pro right underneath the the, the screen, right? <laughs> Instead, it, instead of saying MacBook Pro, it should just say not a touchscreen in, in all caps. Um, and this gets back to the touchscreen laptop thing, which I don't think uh, is a particularly great thing to have. I think it puts fingerprints on your screen. I think it's gross. I don't really think I would want one. But as every single person who has ever encountered a touch, uh, 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 you know, a laptop with a touchscreen says. Once you have one, you will find yourself touching every laptop screen. Not all the time. Not that you're constantly using it for touch because that would be bad. There's a reason you have a trackpad. There's a reason you might have a mouse attached. But once it is able, once you are able to touch it for anything, you expect to be able to touch every laptop screen. It's like one of those one-way valves. You you know, before you have a touch screen, fine, you're fine, no big deal. Once you have one, then you just expect it all the time. And this has been happening in the PC world. And so, you know, we talked about this before about the touch bar and if and when Apple will ever succumb to this trend and finally put a touch screen on Macs. And for me, it's starting to feel like the time when Apple wouldn't make a bigger phone and the entire market was saying, no, we love bigger phones. And it's like, well, is it that big a deal? This the, Some big phones, you know, do people really want them? They're kind of dumb. The phone shouldn't be too big, doesn't fit in your pocket, blah, blah, blah. You can have all the intellectual reasons you want, but the bottom line is if people buy them and maybe they don't, you know, like a touchscreen laptop, maybe they don't love them or like them so much, but if they just, if they just expect them, if the expectation is that every screen in the world must be a touchscreen, otherwise it's basically considered broken by everybody of all ages of every generation, simply because occasionally the most natural, occasionally the most natural thing to do is touch a screen. Not all the time, not as your sole mean of interaction, but sometimes your body, having been trained by smartphones and iPads and everything else, just expects to be able to reach out and touch a screen. And so rather than verbal and visual warnings on screens, we it seems to me that we just need to make every screen a touch screen just for those cases where it, is, it does feel natural to touch the screen, even though I still don't want anyone touching the screen in any of my computers. <laughs> of course. Have you ever accidentally touched the screen on your own laptop? Hell no. <laughs> I would never do that. Now, here's like I said, the one-way valve. If I got a laptop that had a touch screen, I bet I would touch it. And then I bet I would start touching my non-touchscreen laptops and be annoyed. I mean, we've all done this, right? Have you ever pinched to zoom a magazine? I have. <laughs> <laughs> I have also reached for the forward slash key on my lap while reading a magazine to do a search. Forward, like, you know, if you're in a pager in Unix or whatever. And, and gotten far enough where my finger has basically touched the top of my thigh and realized there's no keyboard down there. You can't do, <laughs> do a search in a magazine. I don't think I, I think I might have swiped once. Mostly it's pinch to zoom that gets me. I pinch to zoom on paper. It happens all the time. Humans are dumb little monkeys. <laughs> yeah, I, I never touched a screen like a, a, my own laptop screen at all until about two years ago where it started happening about once a year. I will be reading something 
and we'll try to touch your screen to scroll it. That's that's usually what happens. <laughs> it would be worse if the simulator. I'm surprised you haven't done that with doing all your iOS stuff because what you're seeing is visually like this is an iOS interface. You should touch it, but you can't. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this plays into, I think, a lot of PC strategy issues. Like Apple has been standing the line firmly that touchscreen laptops are not good, that, pe- that, e- that people don't want them, people shouldn't want them. That's, that's not the right solution. But man, the market just keeps saying otherwise, you know, and there's a lot of downsides to it. There's a lot of consideration that has to be done to do it well. Um, and yeah, your laptop will be covered in fingerprints. <laughs> they, they, they all already are. That's the thing, though. They all already are. Well, that's you. But like my iPad's covered in fingerprints. Yeah. Because they, the coding sucks on the 10.5 Pro, but also like that's just the reality of having an iPad. You know, at some point I'm going to like have to wipe my 15-inch MacBook Pro screen on my jeans to, <laughs> to, to get all the <laughs> figures off. But like that is what people are doing. And, you know, when at, at what point, if it hasn't already happened, at what point will most people go into an Apple store thinking, oh, maybe I'll switch to a Mac, touch the screen, it doesn't work, and they're like, well, that kind of sucks. Like that's those were more stories I got on Twitter of people yeah. who work in Apple stores with people who see it saying people come into Apple stores, try to touch the screens on the Mac and expect it to work. Do they just expect they don't know anything about Macs. They just come in, they expect it to work. And sometimes they think it's broken or will tell the person they think the thing is broken and the nice salespeople will lead them towards an iPad in that case. But it's just the expectation. <laughs> and I think and I think Apple's reasoning behind like it's not you don't want to have your arms sticking out, it's not a good way to interact with a laptop. That's all true, but like I think the thing they're missing is like you're not touching it all the time. Of course, most of the time you'd be using the trackpad, right? But just every once in a while, like when you find yourself swiping to scroll on the screen, it's not as if you're saying, now I have to exclusively touch my laptop screen as the way to control it. That would be dumb. And Apple emphasizes that. You would never, if we took away the trackpad and said, you have to, the only way you can use your laptop is by touching the screen, nobody would like that unless you can convert it into a tablet or whatever. But as an occasional input method, it, it's surprisingly sticky and mostly because apple has themselves to blame they're the one that showed that touchscreens can work and be insanely popular there were touchscreens for years and years and everyone hated them and no one used them for anything apple it's apple's own fault that touchscreens have raced through the industry to become the dominant for form interaction with computing devices because the phone is now the dominant computing device and the the number one and basically only way that people interact with phones is by touching them I'm not going to be touching the 8K screen on my iMac uh, on my Mac Pro. I can tell you that. Oh my goodness! Unless it lays down like a cool like what is that? I always forget. Microsoft has the worst damn names. I cannot remember. Studio Books, Surface Stu- Studio, I believe. Surface Studio. Yes, mm-hmm. I would. I would consider that if you want to get me an 8K drafting table. I would consider it Apple. <laughs> All right, so speaking of touchscreens, let's talk about the iPhone 10 user survey. So techpinions.com, written by Ben Bajaran, Bajaran, Baharan, I think. Thank you. Uh, ben writes uh, he, that he and his team conducted a survey of iPhone 10 users, and there's a lot of customer sat to be talked about, and the customer satisfaction for darn near everything is great. It starts, even Face ID, the customer satisfaction is between 90 and 100% based on this one survey. Battery life between 90 and 100%. Things fall off a little bit. How it feels in your hand without a case fall off a smidge more. Still at about 85% for portrait mode. Portrait selfies, now we're down in like the 65% range. But then we start talking about Siri. And it's an inverted hockey stick because we go from like <laughs> 90s to 100s to, to 80s to 60s to 20%. One out of five people is satisfied with Siri, and that's it. And I would like to meet that one out of five persons because 
who is actually satisfied with Siri? People who don't use it? Like, <laughs> what is this? Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know that there's all that much to discuss here other than to say, I don't understand. Well, I was gonna, I was going to say, I don't understand why Apple doesn't see this as a problem, but that's unfair. I, I think Apple sees this as a problem. And I've, I've heard through the grapevine that there's been a lot of hiring for the Siri team lately, but golly, it, it, it's it's more apparent with every passing day how broken Siri is, and God help me for sending Marco down on this tangent, but how broken modern MacBook keyboards are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so keyboards aside, because that's, we talk about that every other episode, what concerns me so much about the Siri thing is that it seems like Apple has just woken up to how bad Siri is, like, since the HomePod came out and was panned for having bad Siri. Like, But, th- but that was not new. Like, all of us knew... That Siri is mediocre to terrible much of the time for years now. And it, it really does seem like that caught Apple by surprise. So this is it's like yet another thing, similar to the laptops, yes. I get worried when Apple it gets so blindsided by reactions or problems that seem so obvious to its customers. I don't know how they could have not known that. You know, it's just like I don't know how they could have not known that the reaction to the MacBook Pros would have been so negative. I don't know how they could have not known that Siri was as bad as it is until recently. But it certainly does seem like they haven't been doing much about it until recently. So that is concerning. On on the bigger picture, though, I, w- I was kind of curious. You know, not to make this all about how much Siri sucks because that's not news and also will not change anytime soon. Um, I'm a little curious to kind of morph this topic and steal it. One of my favorite bits on the show was the iPhone 7 exit interview. And I kind of want to do like the iPhone 10 mid-cycle performance review. (laughs) (laughs) That was very well done, Marco. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Yeah, I assume that's a real thing. He watches The Office a lot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He knows the words, but only from TV. And I know, John, you don't have one, but I, I was I was I, I was at least curious to talk about, you know, just like what we think of the iPhone 10 now that it's roughly halfway through its its year of being, you know, the, the top phone. What do we think of it? Well, let me go first, because even though I don't have a phone, because I do play with my iPhone. And just to, to cap off this article, because when I saw this article teased, I forget where I saw it teased on some site. There was uh, might have been a, a loop inside or whatever. It was like. Uh, uh, iPhone uh, survey uh, broken down by category and you're never going to guess which category had the lowest score. It was some kind of tease like that that was like, guess which guess which uh, bar in the bar chart is going to be really small, right? And before I clicked through the link, I thought, hmm, I wonder which one it's going to be. And immediately I thought, it's got to be Face ID, right? Like everyone loves everything else, but Face ID is the only thing that's possibly shaky on this phone, right? And the reason I thought that is because I hadn't even considered that Siri would be one of the bars, right? Had someone said, oh, by the way, Siri's a bar. I'm like, oh, that's the one. But I didn't even consider Siri would be one of the bars because it's just <laughs> such a non, such a non-factor in the experience, my experience of using my phone. And I never see anyone in my family really use it for much of anything either. That I didn't even think it would be on the chart. Um, and so uh, on, on the iPhone 10, on this survey, you know, Face ID is, is right up there. Like it's it's not even like one of the lower bars. It's kind of middle tier bar, you know, above ninety percent. Um, and my experience of seeing my wife use her iPhone ten, she doesn't care anything about tech. She's not super impressed by the amazing technology that implements Face ID. She has a few complaints about situations where it doesn't work, but overall, I don't hear about Face ID from her. Like it's not it's not an issue. It's not a thing that she tells me she's annoyed about, or I never see her struggle with it. It has different trade offs in Touch ID, but she has accommodated them. 
And like I said, she's not inclined to accommodate them because she's she's dazzled by the G-Wiz technology. I'm dazzled by the G-Wiz technology. I think it's amazing that it works. But as far as she's concerned, it's just her phone and she unlocks it and it's fine. And so I feel like as a proxy for her, for her satisfaction with the phone, I I haven't heard any complaints. And yes, she complains to me if there's something wrong with her phone as if I made it. I didn't make it, but uh, <laughs> she likes it. She likes her phone. She doesn't complain about it. It does all the things it's supposed to do. Uh, and even though she she was coming from a success plus, right? Even though the, the 10 is a little bit smaller, I haven't even heard complaints about that in terms of screen area. I haven't heard complaints about battery life. So I think the iPhone 10 is a very successful product. Again, not using one myself. I, I can't really judge it against the 7 or the success plus or whatever, but it seems really good to me. I think it's a mixed bag, but overall very good. Face ID still, I, I like it. 80 to 90% of the time, which makes sense given the survey we saw that people apparently liked it 95% of the time. But as I've lamented a couple of times on this show, um, when I don't have my contact lenses in, I can only see very close to my face. And I, before anyone writes in, I have tried all of the tricks, all of them. <laughs> I have tried them. I have turned off attention detection. I have turned, uh, I've turned up and down the speed to which the phone locks. I've tried it. I appreciate the help. I do, but I've tried it. Um, but yeah, when I, especially at night when I don't have my contacts in and the phone is, I mean, to be fair, the phone is like three or four inches from my face. If I don't actively touch and fiddle with the screen constantly, I feel like it just almost instantly locks itself all the time. And it's the weirdest thing. Isn't there supposed to be an iOS update, speaking of close to your face, that uh, that makes it work better close up? Is that like a rumored thing for iOS 12? Or is that a thing that came in a point updater? I think it might have already come because it has gotten better, but it is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but in regular working, so it, it, you could reasonably treat that as an accessibility issue. And, and I'm asking for an accessibility affordance. And I, I, could, I can understand that argument. But... Um, in normal use, I don't have the Ray-Ban sunglasses that apparently everyone else has, and so I don't have any problem with my sunglasses on. My Warby Parkers work great. Um, I Even when I have eyeglasses on, which I occasionally wear to get me to like slightly less blurry vision, uh, it still works fine. If I have a beard, don't have a beard, it works fine. So in normal use, it actually works quite well. It's only this nighttime really, really close to my face that it all falls down. Um, the lack of home button... I actually really like it. Like swiping to get out of an app, swiping the bottom to go between apps, the up and to the right, like L action in order to do the multitasking switcher. I really, really like the gesture-based navigation and I am all in on it. And if I had to go back to a phone that didn't have this, I think it would be really, really frustrating. I don't know if it actually is any faster, but gosh, does it ever feel faster even if it isn't. Um, what are the little, uh, animojis animojis? I've used them like five times. It was exactly what everyone thought. It was a flash in the pan. We've never looked back. I still think the idea is fair. And I still think having like seasonal animojis would be cool. Like say you only had Santa, you know, from, uh, November until January. And maybe you only had a Jack lantern from like, I don't know, September through the end of October or something like that. I think that would be a lot of fun. They haven't done that yet. Uh, so animoji kind of, eh. uh, I love the, I do like the size of it. Of course, I'll always miss the size of the 4 Series phones. I wish I had the uh, gumption to use it without a case. 
I am using it uh, with the Apple provided leather case, which is nice, but I've just taken it out of the case and it is considerably thinner and, and feels much better without the case. But given that the back is glass, I am petrified to drop this thing and, and shatter it. So it lives in the case always. Oh, and we also talked about recently um, how much I, and I think Marco was the other one who said the same, love, love, love inductive charging. It's such a stupid thing on paper. Like, who cares? Is it is your life really that hard, Casey, that you can't plug in your freaking phone at night? No, it's not that hard, but it's delightful to not have to. And I quite like that. So love the inductive charging. Love the gesture-based navigation. Face ID, four stars out of five. And, oh, and the cameras are really great too. In portrait mode, it's decent. In the right... In the right situation, it can be incredible. And in every other situation, it's passable unless your name is Joe Steele. And I think that's it. (laughs) All right. So uh, I don't care about the portrait mode. I do think that it is possible to shoot decent looking photos with it. That just isn't the common case. Otherwise, I do love the cameras. The, The cameras are great. Face ID is not good enough. It's fine, but it's not great. Very, very similar to first-generation Touch ID, but even a little bit more frustrating, I think, sometimes, and, like, why it fails or when it fails. I really think Face ID needs to get a lot better, and hopefully it will. Um, I, I, that's the kind of thing Apple tends to be pretty good at. Um, I think it's a little bit a little bit harder of a problem than Touch ID to, to make it that reliable, but I think they can do it. One thing that, bu- that bugs me about the size is that... So I'm a left-handed phone user, even though I'm right-handed, because that's just how my pockets worked out, because I grew up without phones first, then added phones. So I, I hold my phone in my left hand. At almost every time I'm putting my phone back into my pocket when I'm done using it, I will very frequently accidentally tap something on the screen with my left hand's middle finger on the far right center edge of the screen on the way into my pocket. And so this, what usually ends up happening is I'll be typing a message in, in messages where it has a little microphone button on the right side of the text field to send an audio message. And I'll turn the phone off. As I lower the phone into my pocket, the screen wakes back up or maybe I, I doesn't turn it off right. Anyway, on the way into my pocket, my middle finger will accidentally brush that edge of the screen touch the audio message button and I'll hear boop boop as it goes in my pocket. And the next time I take it out of my pocket, there's like a big audio block there waiting to be sent. This can't be the case because I have this problem (laughs) and I hold my phone in my right hand. I think, and I actually meant to mention this, I always blamed it on my case. I felt like my case occasionally like the, and this is again, the Apple leather case. Oh my God, I just figured it out. Go ahead. There's a feature that no one knows about where if you hold the phone up to your ear damn it marco you got to give me a chance oh man that's it i gotta turn that off so i think that's exactly what it is okay now my iphone 10 is perfect what is the feature you think the feature is if you if you're in messages if you hold the phone up to your ear as if you're going to talk on the phone it will do an audio message just by detecting the ear detection there so what's happening is as i'm putting it in my pocket the screen isn't fully asleep yet and so it thinks I'm putting it up to my ear because it's getting blocked by my leg on the way into my pocket. Yep, I think you're right. And so it starts an audio message, then goes to sleep and realizes it doesn't need that and cancels it. 
Sounds like the root problem is you're not actually putting your phone, you're not actually hitting like the power button or something to put it to sleep before you shove it in your pocket. Because it, once once it locks, it's not going to unlock again until you have Face ID on it. Like it's not going to wake itself up and unlock itself and then do the proximity detection, right? I don't care. This is the best thing ever that we that I just solved this. See, <laughs> <laughs> so this is what yeah, I saw. So, okay, John. settings, messages, raise to listen, turn it off. Now, if I hold it up to my headphones, oh, hmm. okay, does nothing. So that, oh man, that should solve it. Casey, I owe you one. Uh, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying this right now. Uh, yep, I'm going to turn that off. Anyway, uh, but one way, I always blamed it on the case because I agree with you, John, that it seems like the phone isn't entirely off. And I always thought that the case was just misfiring or something because, again, I've never really had the phone naked. But I, I was going to say, Marco, and, and you beat me to it, that I think maybe it's a combination of both. Maybe like Marco, your, your, your fingers grazing the screen. Maybe my case is just preventing the, the sleep wake button from being hit, but it's a combination of that. And I think the proximity to our leg or, or something that is causing it, or maybe it's just the accelerometer, who knows, but one way or another, it's causing it to think, Oh, I need to start recording now. And so I cannot count the amount of times that I'll feel a phantom buzz in my pocket, which as an, as a religious Apple watch wearer, that's a very unusual circumstance for my phone to buzz. And so I'll feel a buzz in my pocket, which usually is indicative that the phone is still on and that's in it's silent. And it took the, the alert away from the watch. Or I should say that the watch never got the alert in the first place. And so I'm, st- I, I pick up the phone and I'm still sitting in messages and there's like a 40 minute like uh, audio recording, just like you were saying, Marco, just sitting there. And so I'm, I'm not sure what the, what the real issue is. I, I agree that raise to wake might be part of the problem, but I will, I flipped off that switch and both of us will have to see if that makes a difference. Yeah. I wonder, there might also be some kind of issue where, because you know how the iPhone 10 will, and actually I think the 7 and 8 also, um, will detect when they're picked up and will like un, like unsleep the screen because it's been picked up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And maybe the detection of that is kind of misfiring where maybe we are putting it to sleep. Oh, it's called raise to wake. Thank you all in the chat. So maybe the action of lowering the phone from you know hand level back down to our pants maybe that's triggering race to wake like right after we put it to sleep yeah very well could be i mean if it's if it's if it hasn't moved from our face by that much theoretically face id could fire during that time read our face on the way down like it it is possible but yeah so that that's that's an annoying thing i hope i hope i just fixed it um so getting back to my iphone 10 (laughs) performance review um other than that yeah and and face id kind of just not being fast enough or or good enough i really like this phone the battery life has been surprisingly good for me um it, it, i have i don't think i've ever oh, seen agreed, it go agreed go past i think 20 percent like and even then that's rare like most days i'm ending it above 50 and and there that's partially because there are chi chargers all over my place and i love chi charging it, as you said it's so good um so i'm i'm just really really happy with the the power situation on this phone well, speaking of chi charging a couple of people were complaining on twitter today about the uh the air power mat that still hasn't materialized i know we've mostly forgotten about that but it's worth mentioning apple did announce did pre-announce a product that we're still kind of waiting for i'm shocked yeah i mean like this is a re- <laughs> this is a really long one though this is not like oh they pre-announced it like it's so long that i i frequently forget that it exists and i know technically probably we're within like they said oh next year so basically any time until december 31st and they're they've technically met their deadline but this is another case where it's clear that something has gone wrong somewhere 
Yeah, and, and it's definitely concerning that like this seems to be happening a lot recently. <laughs> Maybe it's because they made it white and they can't make it the white. Well, the good thing about it is, as you said, it's not stopping you from wirelessly charging your phone, right? Like they, they did use a third party standard and that's basically saved their bacon because no one is is uh, stuck without a wireless charger for your phone. You can get one and they're cheap and they're plentiful and, you know, there's good ones and bad ones, but we don't have to wait for Apple's thing. And by the time Apple's thing comes out, we everyone will have already bought them except for people who haven't yet bought an iPhone 10. Yeah, and and you know the great thing about this, you know, as, as you like, they they are so cheap and they're diverse. Like, there there's a much larger diversity of Qi chargers out there than Apple would ever make themselves. Um, there's you know different form factors, different shapes, different sizes, lots of different price points, different um, intended environments for them to be in, lots of different styles and looks, uh, different materials they're made out of. So like, it's actually really a, a wonderful little ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm just very happy with Qi charging. I it's one of those things like i'm sure the android people are like yelling at all of us like you know we yep. knew this like three years ago just just like the opera people like i'm sure opera had chi charging first before everybody <laughs> and then the simpsons had it and then android had it and now we have it okay so if we can set that aside yes we all know that we were not the first to this but it's still really nice and we now know this so we're very very happy otherwise like the size of the iphone 10 i think is perfect for me it is a little tall and a little hard to get my hand around sometimes for like certain things. But for the most part, it's, you know, it is significantly more holdable for me than the Plus phones ever were. And I, I do love the screen space. I actually hope they don't shrink the margins anymore, like the bezel around, because I'm worried that I'll have more accidental tap issues when I hold my phone without a case just like what what I what I thought I was doing with the uh, with my finger on the side. Otherwise, I'm I'm just I'm very happy with it. It's fast. I love the home button list thing. One thing that I like whenever I have to use um Tiff's phone or my iPad or you know things that are not the iPhone 10, what surprises me most is that I can't tap the screen to turn it on. Like that 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 one little touch like where cuz even on the iPhone 8, tapping the screen does not wake the screen up. Tapping the screen to turn it on is awesome. I love that. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's a very good point. Yeah, and then I also... And and having swipe up to go home is great. I still don't like the increased uh, motion and gestures and time that it takes to force quit an app. But I very much like how fast it is to switch apps now because you just swipe across the home indicator. That's so good. Like mm-hmm. when you're flipping between apps, that is fantastic. Given that switching apps for me is a more common action than terminating one, I'll take that trade off. I do wish that you know they could do something great for terminating ones, and I think they still can. I think if they do pull up and then if it's just swiping up in the app switcher on on an app would terminate it instead of having to hold it down first then do that, they could significantly improve that. Um, Control Center sucks. And uh, see, I disagree. I don't understand why everyone has a burr up their butts about this. So I f- I'm finally accustomed to it a little bit more. But now every time I try to pull out notifications, I'm, I miss and I pull down Control Center. Like going for something that I have to pull down from the top of the screen on my iPhone 10 is a lot like plugging in a, U- a micro USB cable. It seems like it takes me three tries to get to get the right thing every time. So true. <laughs> like I'm constantly pulling down the wrong thing for what I want. Um, so that that is one area that I think needs significant improvement. Well, so where are they going to hide that though? Speaking of improvement, everyone's like, "Oh, I hate Control Center," and we all think it's going to reach, right? Okay, but then what? How do you fix it? I think maybe it might be worth investigating combining the two screens, like. 
you know, phones are optimized pretty well for scrolling. So maybe the maybe control center becomes just a a vertically scrolling thing where the notifications just go below the controls you have picked. Like there's enough space that they could actually do that mm. if they you know cuz right now like they, they had this giant padding on top of control center where they they basically have like what looks like a you know 150 pixel tall status bar area. They can just shrink that down to like, you know, 40. And if they shrink that down, but with the default number of controls in Control Center, you'd have room for like three notifications on above the fold. But you would put them at the bottom? Yeah. You put the notifications at the bottom? I think people like to peek at their notifications and are expecting to look at the top of the screen. But they don't show in the top now. They show kind of in the middle because they, sh- they show a giant clock above it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to think of solutions too, and like you know, there's always the punt, which is like we'll just make it a setting, and people can decide which which is their most frequently used control and assign it to. Do you want notifications to be the little ear or notifications to be <laughs> the whole rest of the thing? Uh, but I don't I don't have any great ideas either. I'm just wondering. Like I think it's a hard problem. Like part of the reason it's crappy is because there's no obvious good solution, right? So I'm not sure what they're going to do there. See, and that, that's the funny thing to me is, and, and I will fully admit that I am the minority here. I am not trying to say I'm right. I understand everyone else is, disagrees with me, but I actually, I feel like I've been trained on where Control Center is for a long time. Like, it's not like I just figured this out yesterday. Like, my body... Oh, people it, people it, know where it is. It's just hard to reach, depending on how long your thumb is and how you hold your phone. And so on It's and so a forth. little hard to reach, sure. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like it's as egregious as everyone else seems to think. And, and I, I mean, I'm just saying that's just me. I'm not trying to say that I'm right, because I can hear all the angry tweets and emails coming. But I, it's just, for me, I don't think it's that big a deal. And it, I'm, I'm sure it could be better, but I don't think it's that bad. I don't understand why everyone has such a such a big issue with it well you do understand it's because it's hard to reach and it's now uh there's a potential to get the wrong thing like marco occasionally gets some notifications when he doesn't want to oh not occasionally every time and and there was not a thing that happened with it in its old location which is obviously a non-starter because of the the lack of home button one thing that no one has mentioned so far is the notch so i guess we're all don't care about that uh true yeah don't really care yeah i don't really care either i mean like it's it's not ideal and as i said emphatically many many shows ago Apple does not like the notch, and it will go away once Apple can get rid of it uh, as soon as they can get themselves over the branding that they've developed with it. And by the way, there's been this rash of uh, of notch imitator phones where even phones that don't need to have a notch will add one, sometimes even just like <laughs> displaying the screen underneath where the notch is because the phone OS has no idea that the notch is there, purely for sort of trade dress, you know, uh, imitation reasons to capitalize on on Apple's marketing, so... I think the notch marketing is is a real thing, and that may make Apple keep it for a little bit longer, but Apple doesn't like the notch either. But it's great to see that basically everybody, like, despite the fact that Apple doesn't really want the notch and it is a necessary evil, it doesn't bother people in daily use. You, you forget it's there. You get used to it. Perhaps the only time you have any interaction with it at all is when you go for Control Center and realize there's this divided region at the top because of the little ears and all that. But seems to be, for all the talking we all did about it ahead of time and not knowing what it would be like, Pretty much universally. Nobody cares about the notch. Oh, I will say one more complaint I have about it. As I turned off the screen and and realized the screen scratches incredibly easily. And my screen is a mess. I have so many scratches on the screen. I've never had a visible scratch on a phone screen before. And this one scratches like crazy. You're putting it in your pocket without a pouch. That's why. No, but every other phone can tolerate it. So like, basically, from what I've gathered from asking people and things like that, it seems like they they did change the screen glass material to be uh, more resistant to shattering by making it presumably a little bit softer. Um, And therefore, it now scratches more easily but won't shatter as much. 
that's wonderful for people who drop their phones and hope it doesn't shatter. I'm not one of those people. And so it, they, you know, they definitely, you know, they made the wrong trade off for me, but I, I can't deny that. It's it's probably the right trade off for most people, right, considering like, like how many shattered phones I see and how many people do drop their phones and how little scratches probably bother normal people. In fact, how little large portions of the population can even see the scratches. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is my one major complaint about it. um, Besides the you know, the other one major complaints I had um, is that the screen scratches (laughs) way too easily. And and the problem is like like, you know, some people say, well, why don't you just put on a screen protector or something like that? The problem is the shape of this. Yeah. First of all, gross. Second of all, the shape of this phone uh, is like because the screen just kind of curves right right down into the edge there and the back kind of curves right out of the back like this the the side profile everything is like a gradual curve if you stick something on it like a screen protector or any kind of like decal or anything it's not going to follow that curve so you're basically going to have like an edge that your fingers will have to rub against along the edge of the screen where where like the screen protector just is like sitting on top of the screen and then you have this this like rough edge that you have to like move your finger over all the time that's definitely going to start peeling up and getting dust under it at some point like i just i that is not very good to me but that's spoken like someone who was annoyed by scratches on their phone yeah you're also annoyed by the tiny little like again regular people have those screen protectors all the time they love them and speaking of screen protectors (laughs) my my uh i saw my sister over break and she has a screen protector on her uh phone as well it's like i don't know what it's made out of like plastic it's like one of those rigid screen protectors plus a giant case plus all sorts of other stuff anyway she was holding her phone in her mouth while she was doing something else and it started to slip and she bit down to keep it from slipping and she cracked the screen protector with her teeth this is <laughs> oh, level. so we're talking about like oh i'm annoyed that it scratches on my phone screen and i don't want to put a protector on because there'd be this thin edge meanwhile other people are biting their phones to break them and you know and and then so and i saw her like you know a couple days later same same crack screen protector. It's not like she's going to get a new one. She can still see the screen. It still works. That's how people use their phones. They're not as precious as we are. We are sponsored this week by Eero. Finally, Wi-Fi that works. We all know that if you just have one Wi-Fi router in your house, even if it's covered in antennas and has great promises about range, there's still always like a dead zone or a slow area in your house. What you need is a distributed system. This is what offices and schools and everything have been using forever, but normally it's been very hard to set up and very expensive. Eero gives you enterprise-grade Wi-Fi with a distributed system that you can set up easily in your home in just a few minutes with the Eero app for iOS and Android. It is beautiful, it's easy to use, and Eero has all the features you need. You have state-of-the-art encryption, you have guest networks, there's all sorts of wonderful things with Eero. And the actual units, they are these little white boxes, the first kind plugs into your internet connection, whether it's your cable modem or whatever, and then you can plug in the Eero beacon, which is their little satellite receivers, and these just look kind of like big nightlights. And in fact, they actually even include nightlights. <laughs> they shoot at the bottom. And if you if you don't want that, you can turn it off, but it's pretty cool. Um, and they sit flush against the outlet, and so you have the, the regular base station, and then you can put the beacons wherever you want. So usually, typically, uh, for most U- U.S. houses, you get two beacons and one base station. And this covers everything. And the app helps you place them. You can test their speeds and everything. But when you have Wi-Fi being broadcast from three different places in your house, it covers so much better and for so much further and so much more consistent. If you need any help, they have great customer support to walk you through things. But I bet you won't because it's so easy. 
For free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada, visit Eero.com and at checkout, select overnight shipping, then enter promo code ATP to make it free. Once again, Eero.com and free overnight shipping to U.S. and Canada with code ATP. Thank you so much to Eero for sponsoring our show. All right, let's do some Ask ATP. Don't try to don't try to skip my thing. Uh, we're skipping skip your it. thing. <laughs> no, it'll take two seconds it, because it'll never oh, fit it okay. otherwise. It's two seconds. Everyone, look at your t- timestamps. Look at the clock right now. Two seconds. John says you've taken longer in your warning than I will. Okay, go ahead. And you still have to introduce it. I gotta get my tab open. Look at the oh, <laughs> I see how it is. <laughs> I sorry, sorry, y- Your Majesty. All right, so uh, Guy Rambo, who is uh, uh, one of the people who has done a really incredible job of, of uh, figuring out what's going on within Apple based on like firmware releases and things of that na- that nature, he's also the host of a new podcast which I've been enjoying called Stack Trace. Um, he had found a few days ago now that there's a way to build WebKit in such a way that you can get a dark appearance for WebKit, which is effectively for the purposes of this conversation, Safari. So there is a apparently a dark mode and a you know not so dark mode that you which is the normal mode that you can find and, and engage if you know what you're doing. So with that in mind, does that mean that there's going to be like a full macOS dark mode rather than just the ridiculous looking menu bar that nobody should ever use? Or an iOS dark mode. I mean, it, yeah, true. This, I, I, the reason I found this interesting and, and worth note is that Apple did uh, last release or release uh, two ago the dark menu bar option on macOS. It's been there a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. I mean, some, I'm always surprised when I see people use that, just like I'm surprised when I still pe- see people still rocking the graphite appearance in, uh, in macOS. But anyway, uh, but they didn't do like a whole OS dark mode. They did, oh, you can have a dark menu bar, you can hide the menu bar, you can have a dark dock, but it's not like everything goes dark. And so this is just WebKit. So it could be this is just the next stage in the darkening of Apple's OS is that you can have a dark menu bar and a dark dock. And also, if you enable this mode, the quote unquote native controls inside your WebKit views also have a dark appearance. And we'll put a link in the show notes to two tweets showing the comparison of like, here's what it would look like with dark mode off and here's what it would look like with dark mode on. Uh, And WebKit, of course, is not just on the Mac. It's also on iOS. Um, So I just think it's interesting that I was thinking of this in the context of the of the pro work group people. Like one of the comments that that those people might have added is, "Hey, I'm working in a dark editing bay all day, and when I switch out of Final Cut to the Finder or something, I'm blinded by the giant, completely 100 percent white windows uh, on my desktop, glaring out at me. And so it would be great if I had an overall dark mode just for everything by default, so I didn't have this you know unintentional HDR experience of being blinded by my screen." Or maybe the same thing for iPads. If you're reading, you know, the web uh, at night on an iPad or something, I don't know. It falls apart with web pages because they get to control the colors of the background. But anyway, I thought it was an interesting and a potentially uh, uh, pro angle on everything being dark. And it would be a good match to the outside of Apple's computers, which, as Marco noted uh, on Twitter the other day, also tend to be going in the dark direction. He's got a dark iMac Pro, and you were commenting that, Every single MacBook Pro you've seen has been space gray, despite the fact that it's also uh, offered in silver. So dark things are cool, and maybe there are more of them coming to Apple screens near you someday. That was relatively quick, I will concede. It was, however, longer than your introduction of the topic. Thank you, Marco. All right, Ask ATP. Jacob Ford writes, what's the advantage for Apple uh, of ending support for 32-bit apps on iOS and now macOS? And what does this allow iOS to do? And then a kind of hanger-on from Nelson Conley. 
why can't 32-bit apps run on a 64-bit OS? I can understand the reverse, 64 not working on 32, but why not, for example, why why is it that Apple must phase out support for 32-bit apps on Mac OS? John? I think, yeah, combine these questions because they're both kind of asking the same thing. Like, why, what's the point? Why is that? We've been talking about this as if it's an inevitability that, of course, uh, that uh, 64-bit comes and 32-bit has to be dropped. Why? What the hell's the point? Um, There is actually a point. Aside from the just like it makes things simpler if you don't have to support both 32 and 64 bits, then you can make a CPU that only supports uh, 64 and you, you use fewer transistors. You don't have to deal with 32, so on and so forth. But even setting all of that aside, the most important aspect of, of 64 bit transition is when you have 32 bit and 60, ability to run 32 bit and 64 bit apps, all of the libraries and frameworks and parts of the OS that the applications use also have to come in 32 bit and 64 bit variants. So even if the entire operating system and all Apple's applications and all of your applications are 64-bit, you launch one 32-bit application, and it's got to bring in 32-bit versions of all the other libraries. And that's important because in modern OSs and, and iOS and Mac and everything, they use dynamic linking. Uh, and if you have 20 apps open that are all linked to the same system framework, you don't have 20 copies of that in memory. You have one copy of it in memory. That's important. So it's it, that's that's memory sharing is important. You'd run out of memory on your phone if that wasn't that case. As soon as you launch one 32-bit app, now you have two copies of that library in memory, the 64-bit version and the 32-bit version. So the only way you can ever get the big win of not having to have both versions of a whole bunch of libraries in memory because you've got some 64-bit and 32-bit applications, like because one 32-bit application will ruin it and pull in all of its libraries, is to expunge 32-bit from the system to say, we can't even run 32-bit. Our CPU can't run it, so our CPU can be smaller and take less power and have fewer transistors and and be simpler and so on and so forth. And since we can't run it, we will never have both 64 and 32-bit copies of libraries in memory. So you save RAM, you save battery power, you make it simple. That's why it's kind of accepted as an inevitability that, yes, once you switch to 64-bit, eventually you should get rid of 32-bit. The timing we can all debate about but the wins are real and technical, and that's why Apple's doing this. All right. Uh, Juho Lanonen must be uh, finished. Anyway, uh, he writes, what's... T- oh, God, that's right. Oh, can you skip <laughs> oh, this, please? You were, so, you were so, in such a rush to get the Ask ATP, and look what's sitting there oh, waiting for you. God, this sucks. <laughs> you can move right, to just, the last question if you want. No, uh, no The next okay. question is a Wrangler question, so forget it. We're in, the, we're in that section of Ask ATP now. <laughs> All right. So what is John's opinion on Destiny 2, and are you still playing it? There's been a lot of criticism of the... Uh, downloadable content and microtransactions policies of the game do you think those are hurting the underlying game significantly and casey asks a follow-on question can you please answer this question in english mm, it seems unlikely oh, um God. <laughs> i uh, let's start with easy stuff yes i am still playing destiny 2 this is this uh, question says there's been a lot of criticism of the dlc and microtransaction but honestly the things that are wrong the most wrong with destiny 2 have nothing to do with microtransactions dlc is vague you're just saying like yeah you don't like the expansions the expansions haven't been great but you know whatever the the core mechanics of the game are the things that have problems and i i think i said this in, in one of the slacks recently it's like there's the game destiny 2 and there's the second game that you get with destiny 2 or not second game the second entertainment product that you get with destiny 2 which is uh participation in and observation of the development process of destiny this happened with destiny 1 too uh one as well where it was almost like for three years you got to play a game but you also got to see the development of the game in real time with constant feedback and animosity between the people who play the game and the people who make the game 
and uh, various ups and downs. And that's my memories of Destiny 1, my good memories of Destiny 1 are very much tied up in that interaction between the player base and the ongoing development of the game. It's not like they released the game and you just play it for three years. Like the game changed a lot in those three years and it changed in response to and sometimes in opposition to the wishes of the player base. That continues to happen with Destiny 2. It's more frustrating because we feel like, didn't you learn anything for three years of Destiny 1? Don't you kind of know what people want? They made some bad guesses in the beginning of Destiny 2 and they're backpedaling on a lot of them and that can be frustrating. But I am, I have to admit, I am kind of enjoying seeing the game evolve just like Destiny 1 did, even though it's kind of dumb that they seem to have forgotten everything and made some bad bets in Destiny 2. It's also bad that the player base seems to have dropped off a lot because people aren't willing to put up with this crap because they're kind of frustrated. Like, again, didn't you learn anything from Destiny 1? So I am still playing it. I do have hope that it will get better. It has gotten better from launch till now. Uh, and I still like it, and I still go back to it when I'm not playing some other game. Mike asks, in, in order for me to get back at John, I know you guys keep making fun of the potential Wrangler acquisition, but in all seriousness, I'm interested in hearing further discussion on this. I own two motorcycles, and after a few friends have had serious life-threatening in- accidents, I'm about to sell them both and throw in the towel on bikes, period. One of the joys uh, of motorcycling is is the feeling you get when you're outside, which has me thinking if I, if I could sell the bikes and buy a Wrangler. So the question is, if you got a Wrangler, what would you be looking for? Conversely, if not a Wrangler and you had 10 to 15 to spend on a used vehicle as a weekend toy, maybe some kind of convertible, what would you look for? Hard top, soft top, dependability and ease of maintenance would be key for me. So I will start. Um, if I was going to get a Wrangler, I would have to do the terrible thing of getting a Wrangler Unlimited, which is to say a four-door Wrangler, which is blasphemous. It is a terrible decision, <laughs> but it's what I would have to do. Um, I would get a soft top because hard tops are dumb. And uh, I don't want to hear any arguments to the contrary. And I would probably get a Sahara. I would try to get a Rubicon, but they are really freaking expensive. That's basically how off-road capable and slash nice they are. I ha- There are some off-road um, facilities, roads. I mean, it's not really road. I suppose trails. That's what I'm looking for. Trails near-ish to me. And I like to think that if I got a Wrangler, I would go off-roading from time to time. And thus, having something more than like the base model would be good. But I would basically get as much soft-top, six-speed Wrangler as I could afford. If I wasn't going to get a Wrangler and I was going to get some other kind of used cars, a weekend toy... I think in the ten to $15,000 range, I would either get a Mustang convertible, because, and I would never bring it to Cars and Coffee lest I murder somebody. Um, I would either get a Mustang convertible, a V8 with a stick, or I've always really loved S2000s, which would make John very happy, what with them being Hondas. However, they are quite old now and still worth a fair bit of money. So I don't know if I would want something quite that old. But they've always appealed to me. You won't fit in one. You're too big. No, I've driven one. Or I don't know if I drove it. Did I drive it? I thought I drove it. Your hair is too big. My hair is too big. Have, have you sat in one lately? They're really small. I haven't been in one since 10-ish years ago, but eh, a little <laughs> more than that. But, but at the time, I fit. So anyway, uh, Marco, you haven't talked for a while. So tell me, what would you do if you were if you were forced to buy a Wrangler? And, and yes, I know you're going to say not buy a Wrangler, but let's try to play by the rules. What would you do if you were going to buy a Wrangler and or what would you do if you had to get a $15,000 used car for fun? I have never looked at or priced Wranglers, so I don't even know what my options are, except to say that I know I would, I, I too would opt for the four door version. Um, and I would want the, I, I know there's an option to get a hard top and also have the ability to swap it out for a soft top. Mm-hmm. I would get that option. 
um, because I live somewhere with winter. That's true, except the hardtop is exceedingly heavy, even on a two-door Wrangler, and very unwieldy, because if you think about it, all the weight is in the back, because that's where the glass is. Mm -hmm. So it is a royal pain in the hindquarters to do that swap. And that's why I would advise, even if you live somewhere with winter, I would still advise going soft top. All right. Well, so what I would actually do, though, is take the option presented in the question to not get a Wrangler. And (laughs) so the, the, the question was, you know, if you can get something for like, Basically fifteen thousand dollars or under, uh, used. That would be fun on the weekends. That might also give you that you know that same kind of fun or a, a similar kind of fun as like you know having a convertible or something like that. Um, and so for that criteria, I haven't actually looked that deeply into what's available, but I did a quick search before the show. So what I would go for, I, I would look at basically like you know the, the small, relatively light, relatively sporty convertibles that are popular enough to find used in that price range. So that would be things like, uh, the obviously, the Mazda Miata, I think, would be uh, very high on the list. Um, it, the Miata is not incredibly fast, but is pretty damn fun. And they're popular, and they're plentiful, so they're easy to find. And I did a quick search, and there are plenty of them in this price range that look fairly reasonable. Uh, I would also consider the Mini Cooper, uh, not any of the crazy big like four door ones or anything. Um, the only downside with minis is that because they are BMWs, they are very expensive to maintain once they are out of warranty. Um, so th- that's not really. Great. <laughs> but uh, but otherwise, getting even worse than BMW for maintenance, we can go to a uh, used Cayman. The only problem is the Cayman's an expensive car, so getting one used has to be pretty old. You, you know, yep. it, like I was, I was, I found one uh, that that's a 2008. That was just it was like 14, 14 five or something. So it was like just under the price ceiling, and it's ten years old, and it's a Porsche. So that's not going to be fun to maintain. Nope. <laughs> so, I actually just drove a friend's Cayman uh, a week or two ago. Very nice car. Very very nice car. Really, this his was a 2015, I believe, it was Cayman S. And uh, it, it is a extremely nice car, handles exceptionally well. Go figure. Yeah. You could also do the Boxster, which is similar in many ways. Um, it's also, you know, going to be very expensive for a very old one, <laughs> basically. Um, but, but you, you know, it is possible to do. And then finally, I, I think one option I would very seriously consider um, is a BMW 1 Series. And, you know, for this price, first of all, you know, they're hard to find because they don't sell that many one series or didn't sell that many of them. Um, the two series is too new. You won't find any of them for, the, for 15000 But the uh, the one series was pretty nice, actually. And even like the 128 uh, or the 135 also is another option. But even the, even the base model, the 128, is available in convertible, not that heavy, and it's nice and small. And they're pretty fun to drive. Uh, they're not like, you know, the, the 128 is not going to be as fast as the higher ones, but it's still pretty fun. And so, and and that can be had in this price range. So, and what I like about the 128 and the one series and two series in general, you know, I'm a sedan person. I like sitting at sedan height. And with these, you are pretty much sitting at sedan height. With all the other cars that I've mentioned so far, you're basically sitting on the road. Like you're sitting very low. Your perspective is very low on the road. You're you're not quite as easy for other vehicles to see you if they're higher up than you, and they might merge into you. So, I would actually very seriously consider for this role a one series. John, I don't have to answer the Wrangler thing, do I? I would never buy one of those. You definitely have to answer the Wrangler thing. Yep. Yeah, I would get do. I would get a two door soft top, and I would treat it like a dune buggy, and I would only use it on the beach. That I'm okay with that answer. Actually, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. I would like never want to have it on a road, and, I, I and would, you would crack a smile. Yeah, no, it would be fun. Like who doesn't like a dune buggy? I just don't want to drive it around all the time, like on roads. It's stupid, uh, stupid car. 
Um, fun dune buggy, maybe though. Um, <laughs> for a ten fifteen k Miata, the only other thing I, I, that I might consider that that has been mentioned is the, uh, the what the hell the the FRS. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. What a mm-hmm. B- BRZ Toyota Beru. It's FT eighty six now, I believe. But yes, we're all saying the same thing. thing. I know that's not a convertible, right? But it's like. It's a cheap, fun, sporty car. It's cheap because it doesn't have a lot of power, but it's like it's kind of a throwback type of thing. Um, and that's like I don't, I don't want a Mini Cooper. I don't even want the stupid Fiat uh, Miata clone. There's not many convertibles that I would like besides the Miata. Obviously, I would take a Cayman if I could find one on, in the right price range. But you may pay 14k for that Cayman, but it's not going to be in great shape. And as soon as something breaks, you're going to put another 5k into it before you can <laughs> sneeze because doing anything to it requires ridiculous amount of work. So. That would be kind of, you know, squeezing in. So, that yeah, that's probably what I would do. Although, like, I have never actually owned a convertible, so I don't know how much I would really like them. I think I would treat it a lot like the dune buggy, where it's just a fun thing to drive around in. But if I had to go to a store or didn't live somewhere where it was sunny all the time, I would just say, can I get a car with a roof? You know, convertibles, by definition, have roofs. That's that's the convertible <laughs> part. You know what I mean? Like, and that's what gets into, like, the... They're like an SLK with the with the uh, automated hard top. Like I want, I, I we talked about this in the window thing. Do you keep your windows open and closed? In general, I mostly keep them closed. I don't want the wind blowing on me unless I'm doing that thing where it's like I just want to drive around in an open air thing. Like convertibles and things without roofs should go in summer places and beach places, and that's where they belong. And every place else, I just want an actual car. Thanks to our sponsors this week, Linode, Eero, and RX Bar, and we'll see you next week. Now the show is over They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O A-R-M E-N-T Marco Arment S-I-R-A-C U-S-A Syracuse It's accidental So I have a, continuing the neutral theme, I have a question for you gentlemen. I was leaving uh, Declan's preschool uh, yesterday, and the person in front of me came to a rolling stop and made a turn without his or her signal. So there's a stop sign where you're supposed to come to a complete stop and wait like three seconds or something like that. And this individual neither stopped nor used a turn signal. And I got wondering, which one of those things is worse? Because on paper, I would say a rolling stop is worse because it's less safe. But most people only do a rolling stop when you can see everyone around you and you know that it's safe. But not using your signal, I feel like everyone around me does that. And it's really friggin' annoying. So I will probably say not using your signal is worse. But Marco, what do you think? Rolling stop or not using your signal? What's more offensive? Well, I, well, hmm. It really depends a lot on the context. 
Fair. Uh, and oh, and also, uh, a a rolling stop is one of two moving violations I've ever gotten. <laughs> 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 it was in college. We all make mistakes. I don't. I mean, both of them are unsafe. Both of them, you know, can be very dangerous and can cause accidents or you know hitting pedestrians or something. So, if you're forcing me to rank them, I mean, failing to signal for like a, a right turn versus a that, lane yep. change, like are we are we distinguishing here? Like signaling for any reason or just signaling for a turn? The context in, in this particular case was a person coming to a T in the road and they made a 90 degree right turn without a signal from a rolling stop. But I mean, I think to me, not using your signal is generally speaking, I find that to be deeply unsafe. And I, uh, and I think that that's considerably worse. Was it a capital T or a lowercase T? <laughs> it was a capital T. Okay. And they were turning right? That's correct. Okay, so it affected nobody. Yeah, that's fair. It bothered me behind them, but yes, yeah. you're right. And so in this case, you know, a right turn at a T uh, without a signal is not very harmful to anybody except your mood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and so and therefore the rolling stop would be the more offensive move. All right, John. So without specific context, I know you have a specific context to this thing, but the question is like in general, what's worse? And I have to say, in general, I think uh, the lack of signal is worse, mostly because if you uh, rolling stops can be uh, situational, like we we all know about political stop signs, where there's a stop sign somewhere in your neighborhood where it makes no sense that there's a stop sign there because it's, you know, it's barely even an intersection and the visibility is, you know, 360 degrees for miles in every direction and there's nobody ever there. And it's just ridiculous as a stop sign there, but somehow someone got a stop sign put up there and everybody rolls through it right because there's just there's just no reason to ever stop but i think people do rolling stop situationally if it's a busy intersection and it's a four-way stop everyone's stopping 100 percent because you're getting into an accident if you don't like that that without trying very hard people situationally stop now maybe it's a better habit to just stop fully every single time but i don't know if there are any real experienced adult drivers who literally stop 100% every single time at every stoplight. There are degrees of rolling stops. Like, obviously, you have to slow down to almost zero miles an hour. But if your wheel never comes to a complete and total stop, like, I, you know, it's easy in stick shift cars. Look, you have to shift back into first. If I like I have to shift back into first, I've stopped enough. Uh, and remember, my cars <laughs> have no power. My cars have no power. So I don't even have the option of starting in second gear like cars with actual power, right? Um, so in general, it is better. The turn signal one, I think, is worse because if you, uh, my experience is people who don't signal, it spreads. Like, first it's like, oh, I don't mm -hmm. signal here because there's no cars around. No one needs to know that I'm signaling. But that habit sticks and they just stop signaling everywhere. It's not like rolling stops where it's situational and they just, you know, start doing it again when they need to. They just become non-signalers. We've all seen non-signalers. Doesn't matter what they're doing, turning left, turning right, changing lanes, doesn't matter. They just, the signals don't even exist. Right? Uh, and so that's why I think lack of signals is worse because it seems to spread and because people don't do it situationally. Now, if you give me any specific situation, it could be that uh, in that situation, I would rather have you stop fully than do a signal because a lot of times people think everything is clear. Well, like even Marcus said, oh, T capital T intersection, I'm making a right turn. No one's around. I'm not harming anybody. The reason they have you do a full stop at a capital T intersection when there's no cars for miles is because if there's a crosswalk, you're supposed to stop to check the crosswalk for some kid who's about to run out. So when you do a rolling stop there, if you're rolling too much, you're running over a kid who you didn't see because they weren't on the road. And there's no cars anyway. I can just make a right turn here, and then you just run a kid over. 
that's why you're supposed to stop at stop signs, even when it seems there's nobody, no, nobody anywhere. So it really is situational when rolling stop is good. But, but I think, like I said, in general, the lack of turn signal seems viral, whereas rolling stops seems situational. <laughs> well, and I, I feel like that actually plays into the ranking here. Like, experienced drivers know that you can't trust somebody's lack of turn signaling to mean they're not going to turn because turn signals are so unreliable as a, as a signal. Like, you know, people could signal left and turn right. People could not signal and turn all over the place or you're stopping in the middle of the road. Uh, so, like, this, we know as, 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 like, seasoned drivers, we know that turn signals are not reliable uh, as a source of, of prediction. Whereas I think most of us assume that if there's a stop sign, almost everyone is going to stop or at least come very, very close to stopping. So if it's, and, and you know, there's degrees of rolling stops. You know, if, if you're really, you know, if you're, if you're not going into first gear territory, um, I would, that's a fine line between. Just, that's not, that's not a rolling stop. That's just blowing that's just a stop blowing, sign. Yeah, I feel right. like there's a distinction <laughs> of like a rolling stop is you didn't come to a hundred percent stop, but if so, like the cop might not even have given you a ticket because yeah, you did. But like blowing a stop sign is like, oh, you just pretend the stop sign's not there. That's different than what we're talking about. Also, like in the situation at the T, like if, if you come up to the capital T, you are turning. So whether you're signaling or not, everyone knows you're going to make a turn. And if you happen to be turning right, it's that's why I said, like, there's really no harm done. You are right. If you hit somebody in the crosswalk, that's a pretty big problem. But I I, I wasn't aware that was a <laughs> that was like one of the factors here. Well, it's this thing. It's the thing people think is like there are no cars anywhere around and no one is in the road. Therefore, it's safe for me to roll through this thing and make it right. And the place that you're not looking is the sidewalk. Oh, yeah. No, and so I and I agree that like the rolling stop is the more that's what I'm saying. The rolling stop is the more dangerous thing. First of all, because of a situation like that. Second of all, because people don't. It, I, I think more people ass, will assume that you're going to stop at the stop sign than will assume that you're not going to turn if you happen to not be signaling right now. Yeah, I think signaling. I don't want to throw more like you know this state is better than that state, but I really do find it changes a lot based on geography. Uh, because I think, for the most part, for all of the bad Massachusetts driver or Boston driver things, and there are bad Boston drivers, signaling is pretty consistent around here, whereas other states that I've driven in, signaling seems almost non-existent, and I'm shocked by it every time. Yeah, Virginia is not great about this, and Virginia is particularly bad about running red lights, which is so dangerous. I don't understand what the issue is here. And I've been I've lived in Virginia basically since college, you know, with a couple of sh- with a short stint back in Connecticut, but for 18 years I've been here, and I don't understand how and why so many people run so many red lights so regularly. It drives me bananas. I don't get it. Do you guys have the Pittsburgh left at lights? The what? So you're on a, you're at a road, you're at a, you're at a stoplight. The opposing traffic that's that's going, you know, the opposite direction is you that's currently stopped. The the first car in that line wishes to make a left turn. The light turns green for both of you. That first car jumps the gun and turns left right in front of you. So oh it, no. That's oh, not the, no. that's not the Pittsburgh left. That's like every state in the northeast left. Right. And so the idea so basically like if you as the person going straight floor it when the light turns green, you will hit them. They just kind of do it cuz they figure like you're probably not going to hit me, so I'm just going to gun it and go for it. Um so this was this was a thing that I learned in Pittsburgh that everyone there called the Pittsburgh left, but yeah, John, you're right. Everyone in New York does it too. Uh, but only in certain suburbs. It's like, it is kind of like micro-regional around here. 
I hate that. Like that—that that is my pet peeve. If somebody does a pitch left, left in front of me, I will hold down the horn and almost hit them because I'm trying to make a point that that's not okay. Uh, it like that drives me nuts. And, and like sometimes I will, like if I if I know that I can beat them, I will just like floor it and just cut them off so they can't make the Wait, left. You're going to get into an X. That's not defensive <laughs> driving. That's the opposite of defensive driving. That, that, is, that is absolutely accurate. However, what on the road can you not beat? I mean, there are very few cars, especially that you would see in a regular occurrence. Well, the, the reason people do it is not based, it's based on attention. Like, if he's not paying attention, he's looking at his phone, right? The, the light has been green for a while. The person makes the left is like, that guy's not apparently not going. And here's the great thing. Massachusetts has this great thing called delayed green where there are intersections, still probably some of them around, where uh, the light turns green for you, but you have no idea that the the oncoming traffic in the opposite direction does not yet have a green light, that you get a green light for a full five or six seconds before they do. It's for you to make a left turn. There is no indication in the intersection. You don't get an <laughs> arrow. There's no signs. You just have to know, oh, everyone knows that this intersection is delayed green. And so that's, that's to drain the... There's no left turn lane. It's to drain the left turners before they come. So... If you don't know that and you're afraid to make a Pittsburgh left, now you're going to have a bunch of angry people honking at you saying, what are you waiting for? Turn left. Because otherwise you'd be holding up the whole line, the single line of traffic. Delayed green is fun. 